Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today God speaks to us uh, from Galatians and Romans. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Thanks be to God. So there are many uh, different aspects of the Christian faith that some find to be scandalous, uh, challenging, problematic. Uh, There's a lot of different doctrines that the church holds and has historically held uh, that come in conflict with contemporary notions of uh, ontology and epistemology and just the world in which we know it. Uh, But one of the most scandalous, I think one of the most challenging, one of the most problematic, the one that tends to come up against the kind of perspectives and worldviews of the modern day is a particular doctrine known in the church as total depravity. Uh, Many church traditions hold to different understandings of the doctrine of total depravity, but total depravity, and we'll explain a little bit what I mean by that, what I mean by total depravity, total depravity, uh, comes in very direct tension as well with an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to look at today. If you've been with us, you know that we've been in a series looking at the fruit of the Spirit, seeing how as we trust in the work of Jesus and the Spirit is at work in us, there is fruit that comes. And the aspect of that fruit that brings us most tension, I think, is this idea of goodness. And here's the tension. I have bad news for you today. We have all been given an impossible task. In fact, we are all bound with an obligation to fulfill this task. The problem is, you and I lack the resources 
fortitude, knowledge, and conviction to accomplish this most vital of tasks. You know, if you remember the uh, old Mission Impossible, I don't know if the new Mission Impossible does this, but that old Mission Impossible mission recording, right, with the exploding tape, you know, if you, uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it? This mission that is absolutely impossible for us is being good. Psalm, uh, Psalm 37 gives us the task, gives us the mission, says, trust in the Lord and do good. Matthew 5 tells us that we are to let our light shine so that others may see our good works. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Galatians 6 tells us, do not grow weary of doing good. James 2 tells us that faith without works or good deeds is dead. Right? So we are commanded to good works. We are commanded to be good. But then you come to Romans 3. Romans 3 is quoting Psalm 14, and it says, no one is good, not even one. Isaiah 64 tells us that even our good deeds are filthy rags before God, meaning every time you even do good things, those good deeds are not actually good. Mark 10, uh, there's a man who calls upon Jesus and calls to Jesus and says to him, calls him good teacher. And Jesus responds to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I mean, what are we now to make of this reality? That goodness ought to be something that's growing in the life of the Christian. Goodness is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And yet time after time after time in the Bible, summarized in the doctrine of total depravity, we are told that we're incapable of being good. Incapable of being righteous. What are we to do with that? Glad you asked that question. Let's answer that today. First, let's look a look, take a look at the impossibility of goodness, the reason for the impossibility, and then finally, accomplishing the impossible. Okay, so first, the impossibility of goodness. A genuinely scandalous idea of the Christian faith is found in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. Let me quickly reread that for us. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, it's important to note, Paul here is quoting an ancient text in Romans 3. He's actually quoting Psalm 14. Which means that this whole idea of no one being good is not some new concept in the New Testament or for Paul. Rather, it's a deeply rooted ontological assumption about humanity from the biblical perspective. What I mean is that you cannot understand the Bible. You can't understand the narrative of the Bible, the theology of the Bible, the trajectory of the Bible, both leading up to Jesus and also in the time coming to when he will one day come again. You cannot understand anything the Bible has to say unless you start here. Total depravity, that no one is good, that you and I are incapable of being good and righteous. In fact, the story of the Bible is actually one of our rejection of goodness. 
Of course, if you know the broad strokes and broad uh, history and story of the Bible, it all starts really in Genesis 3. This part of it starts in Genesis 3 where you have this fallen humanity. It's a fall that's, that leads to this the, uh, generative nature of sin, this lack of goodness. The doctrine of sin is that it's like a virus. It infects every generation of the human race since the time of the fall. And here's the real tension that comes into conflict with modern day notions of who we are, is that we, from the biblical perspective, we don't do sin, we don't do sinful things, but rather we are sinful. By our nature, sinful. This is the testimony of the scriptures. This is fundamental to understanding the problems in humanity and in the world and our position before God. You cannot understand Christianity without recognizing passages like Psalm 51 that tells us that we're born into iniquity. Or Ephesians 2 that tells us that we're dead in our sin. Not that we're sick in our sin or that we're broken or that we're on life support, but we are dead in our sin. Right, by our nature, there's a bit of a zombie apocalypse. We are spiritually dead, yet physically animated in this world. This, again, is the biblical narrative, the testimony of the scriptures. And as we look out into the world, the restraint of evil in the world that keeps us from completely destroying ourselves is not primarily a work of our own genius, but rather it's a work of God's common grace on all creation. Without God's common grace on us all, we would devolve into absolute chaos. And also the thing I would point out here is consider the egalitarian assumptions that Paul has here uh, in uh, Revelation 3. Specifically, look at verse 9. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have all, uh, for, sorry, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under the power of sin. Now, what's that talking about? What's he saying? Well, among many things, at minimum, he's leveling the playing field here. And what I mean by that is Paul is Jewish, right? Part of the people of God in Israel. The Gentiles are not Jewish, and they did not follow the law of God. And so with that in mind, Paul is not saying, look at those Gentiles who do not follow the law of God. They are under the power of sin. Rather, he says... All of us, Jew and Gentile, all under the power of sin. In other words, we're all the same on this front. We are all in the same position before God. We are all, we all have the same nature, sinful nature. You know, there's a lot of things that might divide us in this world, but if there's any unifying reality, the thing that you most have in common with the person sitting next to you is total depravity the sinfulness of your nature. And no matter who you are, whether you grew up in the church or you grew up as an atheist or you grew up in a wealthy family or a poor family, from a, you're from an affluent nation or a, a poor nation, all of us by nature are the same, incapable of goodness. Now with that in mind, that in front of us, I could imagine that you could picture why this would come into conflict with many modern day notions about our nature and who we are as people. By nature. And there's two groups of people I want to talk to very quickly. The first would just be, I want to talk to Christians who would generally say they believe this. And I know that there are certainly some in the room. We are sinful. And you would say, yes, I agree. But let me speak to you for a moment. Because in my experience, Christians who 
say that they believe this doctrine to be true, at the same time can very often be some of the most self-righteous people that I know. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we actually, as Christians, forget this very point. The Apostle Paul, one who I feel very confident probably cared more about the law of God and righteousness than we do, Christian, also genuinely called himself the chief among sinners. He said this of himself, that no one is righteous, that no one is good. We commit so often to doing what we deem to be righteous and then assume ourselves to be righteous as a result. You know, what I mean by that is maybe you're moral, you're nice, you read your Bible, you might even pray, and Paul says to you, you're not good. You might read those really big, thick books on doctrine. You might listen to sermons every day. You are bold at telling other people about their sin. You look around believing yourself to be better, functionally, practically, believing yourself to be better, and maybe even find yourself regularly praying that prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18. Remember that prayer where he looks upon a sinner and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. And yet the Apostle Paul says here, stop it. Stop talking. Because you are under the same power of sin. I referenced Isaiah 64 a minute ago. It says that our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Why? It's because often, even when we do good things, even in that moment, we're doing it for our own sake. And usually the way that plays out is we'll say, God, I've been good. Now you are in my debt. I've done good things. Now you need to bless my life. Or maybe we do these good things for the purpose of bolstering our own sense of goodness, bolstering our own sense of even superiority to those who don't do those same things. Christian, if you're ever starting to feel like maybe you're better than others, more righteous than others, I would encourage you every now and then, take a quick pass at Romans 3 and remind yourself that you too are fallen. Total depravity applies to all of us. Now I want to also then talk to the group of people that you're like, this is all crazy. This whole idea that you could see someone in this kind of way, this kind of quote-unquote total depravity, maybe for some just seems completely insane. And to be fair, I get it. I totally understand and hear you on this. Because the modern notion of our nature is that really we're, we're kind of neutral. We're born neutral. You know, we're neither good nor bad. And we simply are nurtured into being good or bad. And so maybe for some, you don't even hold a category for this kind of perspective of the world and this kind of perspective of who we are. In fact, for some, that category is so far, you're listening to this and all you're hearing is this sounds really cynical, it sounds really pessimistic, maybe even harmful to think about this way, about oneself. And frankly, again, I understand the impulse. To talk about humanity in these terms doesn't seem to give a whole lot of room for the beauty and the worth and the value of human life. Why would we talk about ourselves in such depraved kinds of ways? And often, for some, it, this whole idea of total depravity seems to lead people to believe that they're not good enough and they'll never be good enough and that they can't enjoy life as a result. 
It seems far more positive and inspiring and loving to just make sure that everyone believes instead that they can fulfill who they are and what they're designed for and what they're created for if they just love themselves more. And there's a lot, actually, I agree about that idea, about loving oneself, caring for oneself. But here's the problem. I don't think we can actually fully grasp why the Bible talks about humanity in these terms without not just considering that it's impossible for us to be good, but also to look at the reason for the impossibility. I want to try to give you the reasons why it's impossible for us to be righteous and good. All right, here's why. The main reason why we cannot be good, right, let's start with this premise, that if God is God, and if he is the creator of all things, then by necessity, all goodness flows from him. There are no conceptions of good that would not in some way be rooted back to the source of goodness. So all pursuits must lead us back to that source. I mean, much like following a river, you'll eventually reach the source of that river, so should we understand goodness. That if we are to be good, our goodness ought to flow back to that source of goodness. And here's why that becomes a problem for us. Look at uh, verses 10, what Paul says in verse 10. He said, there is no one who seeks God. In verse 12, he says, all have turned away from God. Then he goes on to verse 18, and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this comes back to the, the narrative of the Bible. This idea that no one seeks God, no one fears God. What does that mean? Well, consider what it means to seek God. Consider what it means to turn away from him and what it means to not fear him. I think the, the best example that I've, I've heard this compared to is what happens to Israel in the ba- uh, Babylonian captivity. Again, if you, if you know the story uh, of Israel, Israel was conquered, you know, the people of God, they were conquered and held captive by the Babylonians. And they languished in captivity, desperately wanting freedom from their captors uh, in order to go home back to the promised land that God had given them. But God then sends the prophet Jeremiah to speak to those who are in captivity. And the words that Jeremiah gives to the people in captivity is essentially that they are going to live there in captivity for another 70 years. And what that meant is that the vast majority of the people that heard the promises of Jeremiah, that one day they would get to go home, but it won't be for 70 years, most of the people that heard it died in captivity. But God also, in all of that, tells them to settle down, to build homes, to have children, and to seek the peace and prosperity of this Babylonian city that they were were in. And in his promise to them, he gives them this hope and this future. And what I want to do, I want to read for you an interesting um, call of God to the people in Jeremiah 20. Let me read this for you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your hearts, I will be found, God says, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, and and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Here's why I draw all this out for us. Even in the midst of their captivity, God is calling them to seek him, 
to desire him, to give their whole lives to him. And the reason why this matters, why God is calling them to do so, is because the history and story of Israel is that they had not done it. They had not sought him. They had not given their whole lives to him. They did not desire him. Leading up to the exile, this is what brought them into exile. Is there was no submission or willingness to obey God. And as a result, here's the point, as a result, they had severed their ties to the source of goodness. And instead, again, if you know the story, they had turned to their own gods. They had created idols in the land that they worshipped. They lived as they wanted to live, not considering the God who had created them and blessed them. Instead, they designed gods, created gods, not that they would serve, but rather gods that would serve them. In the end, they turned away from the true God toward themselves and established gods in their own image so they could control and manipulate them. They assumed themselves to be that which was ultimately valuable and worthy and good, not the creator. They had turned away. And so the impossibility of goodness is directly tied to a rejection of God as God in pursuit of being our own God, focusing attention back to ourselves. In uh, 2011, Oprah, of course the longtime running influential talk show host, she ended her long-running show. And in the final episode uh, in, back in 2011, she made some final comments to her audience uh, that I want to share with you. And I also want to be careful here because Oprah's an American icon who has contributed much to the world, so don't get mad at me for drawing on some things that I'm about to say. But I think she emphasizes some things well for us that we need to consider. This is what she said to her audience. She said, there is a common thread that runs through all our pain and all our suffering, and that is unworthiness. Not feeling worthy enough to own the life you were created for. Even people who believe they deserve to be happy and have nice things often don't feel worthy once they have them. And then she goes on to say, you being alive makes worthiness your birthright. And then she says this, you alone are enough. Now here's some sentiments that I uh, agree with. Right? This is a very modern notion of humanity, that we are enough in ourselves. And here's a few things that I agree with. Number one, I agree that we are valuable and that we do have a problem of worthiness or unworthiness, rather. People who believe they deserve to be happy and to have nice things, as she says, often don't feel worthy once they've attained them. And if you've ever accomplished a goal that you so desperately wanted to accomplish, it feels really good in the moment, but give it some time. And over time, it wears and it doesn't quite produce the same kinds of feeling. I agree with all of these kinds of things, but here's where I disagree. And if people are honest, I think they would concur. This idea of you are enough. Because as she says, there is a life that you were created for. And here's where I want to push. Until we realize what we were created for, the best that we can do is assume ourselves sufficient to create our own conceptions of what we're created for. But what I have found over and over again in my own life and as a pastor meeting with people, 
I have found it to be pretty universal that our conceptions of what we are created for is very limited and insufficient. I mean, what if our conceptions of purpose are full of self-deceit? Have you ever known someone desperately self-deceived? If our understanding of what is good and right and true, what if all of those understandings, they're limited by our finitude, our, uh, the lack of knowledge that we possess? What if what you've deemed to be good, right, and true is simply limited by what's been in front of you in the very short span of your life? Never really being able to understand a wider, broader understanding of what is good, true, and just. Some might say, well, you know, that's fine with me. I'm totally fine with that. I don't care about what anybody else's thoughts. I don't care about what anyone else thinks now or in the past. I really only care about myself. I will do what I want, when I want, to whom I want, and I refuse to submit to anyone else's opinion, anyone else's authority, anyone else's power over me. I will not submit in that way. Now, I understand that many may take that position, but the problem with that position is that there are definitely people like that in the world. People that really push that to its extreme. I will do what I want, when I want, how I want to. But let's be honest. Most of the time when someone really is that way, their lives are lived with such reckless abandon that it creates destruction all around them. Right? This complete lack of rootedness in something that is outside themselves leads to severe consequences and often grave injustices. You know, over the last, I don't know, six months or so, for whatever reason, I've been really obsessed with ingesting a lot of stories about dictators and how dictators come to fruition in life and in history. And what's really interesting, most dictators have this exact posture. I will not submit. I will not listen to anyone else's authority. I am my own master and I will do what I want. All of them have that same kind of attitude. And that is the end result. If you push it to its extremes of what it means to jettison any rootedness in something that is good, just, right, and true outside of ourselves. And let's be realistic. How often, when we look inside ourselves, are we just like Israel? Right? We're looking inside ourselves because we don't want to look to God. We're trying to avoid him. Seeking within ourselves isn't going to find, or we're not going to discover anything that ultimately isn't supposed to be leading us to God. If we want to discover value and worth and meaning of our, in our lives, if we want to discover what is good and right and true and just, we all want to live a life that matters. In the words of Oprah, if we're going to do all that, we need to know what we were created for. But what good will it do for us to look within when as we do that, we are actually turning away from the one who holds true goodness, true meaning? I mean, this is why no one does good. Because of the fall, we are wired to naturally reject God and put ourselves on the throne that only he should be on, to be our own God. And so, with all of that said, okay, I've just said a lot. With all of that said, what the heck is Paul talking about in Galatians 5? Why is goodness 
listed as something that ought to be growing in us. We can't be good. And the reason why we can't be good is because we've rejected God. So what's he talking about? Let's take a look finally at how we can accomplish the impossible. Uh, Something that we've done every single week uh, is to take a look at the Greek word that's listed in Galatians 5 uh, so that it kind of colors for us what Paul is saying. Let me do that quickly because I actually think it's helpful. See, the Greek word in Galatians 5 that's translated as goodness is actually not the same word that's being used in Romans 3 when Paul is speaking of goodness. Uh, So just in case you're doing your weekly, daily Bible reading in Greek and you notice that slight difference, just know, I know that those are different words. I I joke about that, but I know people that do their devotional time in Greek. I don't know how they do it. But the word for good in Romans 5 is actually the same root word as kindness, which we looked at last week. If you remember, we said that the, the word kindness can be translated in a variety of different ways. It's a very rich word. And kindness is really speaking of being others-oriented. Okay? So in Romans 5, when Paul says that no one is good, no one does that which is good, what he's saying is that no one truly does that which is others-oriented. We are naturally selfish. Okay? So that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 5. Pin that for a second. But then you have a different word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 for goodness. And this has a much deeper meaning than just actions. In fact, the the word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is a very rare word. It's only used four times in the entire New Testament, and Paul is the only one who uses it. And that word indicates not so much actions, but rather the virtue of goodness. In, in a sense, it's the moral uprightness of the heart. The word that Paul is using here is this internal sense of goodness, which then, as a result of having that internal sense of goodness, leads to good actions that he describes in Romans 3. In other words, there is a goodness of heart from which good actions and good deeds flow. However, Paul's entire argument has been that we don't do the good deeds. We aren't good. Why? Because the internal goodness of the heart is is disconnected from our actions. Something needs to happen to the internal goodness of the heart before any action becomes good and righteous. And all of this is where the Spirit of God comes. This is why it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a work that the Spirit does in us to take us from a heart that is not naturally good to then giving us, in biblical language, a new heart, turning our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And this is accomplished in one singular way. There's only one way that our heart changes to that uprightness of the heart. Look at verse 19 through 21. It says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the words, or I'm sorry, by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we have become conscious of our sin. Just 
pause there for a second. So we're told that there's no way for us to be made righteous by obeying the law. Right? So you're not going to become righteous by doing good deeds. We've already said how this works. We don't desire God and we don't desire to do his law in the ways that he's called us to. And so pursuing goodness, pursuing good deeds won't do anything for us. But then it goes on in verse 21. Here comes the hope that we have. 21 says, but apart from the law, the righteousness, righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Your righteousness, your goodness, that moral uprightness of the heart that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's given. It's not something you're going to accomplish or do. It is a given. You know, so often when we think about the work of Jesus, we often reference the cross and the resurrection. And those are vital realities and aspects of the gospel message. But the gospel message is not just that Jesus died and resurrected for you. The gospel message is also that he has lived for you and that his perfect righteousness is lived on your behalf so that when he does go to the cross, he does not just take your sin, but he also gives you his righteousness. This is what's been called the great exchange. I give Christ my sin. He gives me his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that as we trust in Jesus, we are then made good, given goodness, given righteousness. We possess this as we trust in Jesus. And out of that goodness, as the Spirit works in us, then we begin to do good things. Then our actions, our righteous deeds are truly good because they are flowing from the one who is truly good. God himself, looking at your good deeds, or even looking at your bad deeds for that matter, as the marker of whether or not you are good and righteous is the wrong paradigm. Looking at our good deeds is certainly an indicator of whether or not maybe God has done something in us. But the true indicator of whether or not there is goodness growing in us is whether or not we trust in the goodness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus that has been given to us to trust the life that he has lived for us, to trust the work that the Spirit is doing in us, and to then live a life in response to this goodness. That's the, that's the gospel. This is what Jesus does for us. So my prayer for all of us would be this, that we do not look to our own righteousness as some kind of measure as to whether or not we're good before God. You're never going to do it. It's impossible to be good. But rather... Our confidence before God comes as we trust in Jesus, the one who gives us righteousness, that moral uprightness of the heart granted to us by faith in him. I pray that that consumes us in the ways that we understand ourselves. We find ourselves resting in him and him alone, not our own righteousness, so that as we go out into the world, our goodness points everyone back 
to the true source of that goodness, which is God himself. May God do this in us for our sake and for a world who desperately needs to know the goodness of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you see us in our depravity and in our sin. We thank you that you see us in our rejection of you, having made idols of ourselves. But God, you don't leave us there, but rather you call us to return back to you. You call us to again trust in you and to see you as the source of goodness. Lord, that we might submit our lives fully and completely to you. And so God, I pray. For those of us here who have heard maybe this doctrine a thousand times and yet still find ourselves regularly relying on our own righteousness, God, would you break that so that we might again see Jesus, our perfect righteousness, and live in response to his love for us? God, I pray for those that maybe this is the first time they're hearing this idea of total depravity. God, I pray that your spirit would bring a recognition of that depravity, that they might now, for the first time, put their hope and faith in Christ, to know that it's in him and in him alone that we find what we were created for. God, would you do it? In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.